Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, November the 17th. Now, when you hear about abusive relationships, you probably imagine physical violence. But today we're going to explore a different and also very messed up kind of abuse. I was only allowed $100 to spend on um, anything that was outside the household expenses. Everything was put in a giant Excel spreadsheet. We're talking about financial abuse. What a lot of people don't recognise is how this stuff starts to evolve. Mm. It's not like being robbed at night point, you know. It, it'll start off really subtle. How to protect yourself from financial abuse in just a moment on The Briefing. First, Annika Smethurst is here. I'd say this is probably our, our favourite way to start a show, isn't it, Annika, with big vaccine news. The best of news, Tom. <laughs> Yes, the end of the COVID pandemic is another step closer with news of a second vaccine breakthrough overnight. Yeah, the US biotech firm Moderna um, has a vaccine that's proven 94.5% effective in trials involving 30,000 people. Half of those people were given two doses four weeks apart and the rest got a placebo. All up, 95 people caught COVID. Of those, five had been vaccinated. Moderna CEO Stefan Bansell says they're especially excited that none of those five became seriously ill. Of course, we are delighted that the vaccine has close to 95% efficacy. But what we all want is if somebody gets infected, that they don't get severe disease. America's top doctor, White House advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, says this is hugely promising. The data are striking. They're really quite impressive. I mean, a 94.5% efficacy, that is really quite impressive and, and really is something that for, that foretells an impact on this outbreak. Oh, wow. I love it when Fauci gets excited. Um, the company will hand safety data to American safety regulators in the next few weeks, and it's aiming to make up to a billion doses available worldwide next year. No word yet when it will reach our shores. Do we have a deal with this particular vaccine, Annika? Not a direct deal per se, but this is part of that COVAX global vaccine scheme. So a bunch of countries around the world put in money. We put in $120 million to enter that sort of agreement, which means if any of the vaccines are successful, we get enough to vaccinate half the population. So it's not like we're going to be making it here. We're making another one, the AstraZeneca one, which is the University of Oxford's vaccine. There's also the University of Queensland's vaccine we're banking on, but we will have some access to this one. Yeah, so those vaccines, the AstraZeneca one and the University of Queensland, um, they're different to the, the two that have had these great results so far, aren't they? The Moderna one and the Pfizer one are mRNA, which are, are quite difficult to produce. They need to be kept refrigerated at minus 70 degrees, so we have to import them here in Australia. Does that mean those ones could take a bit longer um, because we put our eggs in the basket of, of those other kinds of vaccines? Look, my understanding is results for the AstraZeneca Oxford one are weeks away. They were all up to stage three at about the same time. And we've already started producing it, banking on it working and banking on early results. It's being produced in Melbourne. So fingers crossed that's not far away. The Queensland vaccine might take a little bit longer, but as we've heard throughout this pandemic, there won't just be one wave of vaccines. There's going to be second generation, third generation vaccines. And if they're all getting this sort of uh, results, it won't really matter which one we get. And meanwhile, South Australia's COVID cluster has grown to at least 19 as it grapples with a potential second wave. What we are facing is indeed a second wave, but we haven't got the second wave yet. We are in very, very early days. That was the state's chief health officer, Nicola Spurrier. 
From today, gyms are closed, while there's also a cap on the number of people in restaurants, homes and at weddings and funerals. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how South Australia respond to this. I guess it's a ripple at this stage and they clearly don't want it to become a a proper wave. So they're taking all these short-term, two-week measures. Um, Here's the Premier, Stephen Marshall. Uh, He's confident that it won't go the way... Uh, the Victoria went. We are now facing our biggest test to date, but we can and we must rise uh, to this new challenge. I want to assure all South Australians that we are working around the clock to stay ahead of this cluster. Western Australia, Queensland, Tasmania and the Northern Territory have reintroduced mandatory quarantine for South Australians. Victoria has also declared the state a hotspot and introduced extra screening, while New South Wales is keeping the border open. Yeah, and I saw some photos from Adelaide Airport yesterday. and These decisions kicked in really quickly, these state border decisions, and it was absolute chaos there. Um, if there was a bit of an outbreak in Adelaide, that would have been a pretty dangerous environment because there were so many people close together wondering what the hell they were doing. Um, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, will today send in the troops to help with contact tracing and rapid testing. And Australia's Acting Chief Health Officer, Paul Kelly, told ABC 7.30 he's confident this will be contained. The response, which has been so rapid and so comprehensive in, in South Australia, really shows to me that they're on top of their game and that response to outbreaks is the key as we go forward with this virus in Australia. Sounds like Team Australia's back on Annika and we're jumping on this one. And victims of the government's robo-debt scheme will share a record $1.2 billion in a settlement from the federal government. Yeah, 430,000 Australians will share in the biggest settlement in Australian history after they were illegally chased by the tax office for automatically calculated debts that they didn't know. We've been working through that process uh, with the lawyers. What we have been doing most importantly is we've been settling those payments. So over $700 million has already been paid back out through this process and there's a bit more to go. Huge win for the opposition's Bill Shorten who's been prosecuting this. Now last night he told the ABC he wants a Royal Commission into how this happened in the first place. A Royal Commission will explain to us so never again will 400,000 ordinary people who are receiving a government payment get treated as criminals by their government. So Annika a lot of people sort of fired up about this are calling for someone to be sacked. Who would that be exactly? Because this ran over many years, this program, didn't it? That does become the problem. Look, the current minister is Stuart Robert, but there's a lot of people who've had their hands on this. Alan Tudge, who has made the news for other reasons this week, as well as Christian Porter and even the Prime Minister himself. Yeah, I, I remember when this first blew up years ago, Alan Tudge was the minister and, you know, he was trying to defend this and It just kept on going, this story, for years, and we heard more stories of vulnerable people who were pushed over the edge by um, these supposed um, ATO debts, and it just kept on rolling. Yeah, as we heard there, the the Prime Minister has apologised for this one before, and I think the thought was in government for a while now that this is where it was going to end up. Now, income averaging has actually been used for years but usually there was some sort of manual checking that went along with it. They got rid of this, and of course, this is when the problem started. Pete Evans has been dropped by his book publisher after sharing a cartoon which included a symbol used by the Christchurch terrorist. He posted the image on Sunday. It showed a caterpillar wearing a Make America Great Again hat talking to a black butterfly with the black sun symbol on its wings, which is a symbol used by neo-Nazis. Yeah, and someone in the comments identified the black sun symbol and Evans replied, I was waiting for someone to see that. 
But in a follow-up post, he apologised to anyone who misinterpreted the cartoon as promoting hatred, adding, I look forward to studying all of the symbols that have ever existed and research them thoroughly before posting. His publisher, Pan Macmillan, put out a statement saying it doesn't support recent posts and is finalising its relationship with a celebrity chef. Book chain Dimmicks has also announced that it will no longer sell his books online and is returning physical copies to the publisher. But at this stage, he's still expected to appear on Channel 10's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and there's already quite a bit of backlash building up uh, around that online. All right, in a moment, we're going to talk about financial abuse, a hidden epidemic. When you're in that carefree stage at the start of a new relationship, the last thing you probably want to talk about is finances. Yeah, it's not the hottest chat, is it, really, <laughs> at the start of a relationship on the on the pillow. Um, but money can, you know, down the track cause massive problems for couples and it, it can even get to the stage where it's used as a tool of emotional abuse. And that's what happened to this woman called Sarah, which is not her real name. And we've also had to disguise her voice because she was worried about backlash for speaking openly about this. After that happened and we got the joint account, the control over my end of the finances really kind of got ramped up. Um, We were in a situation where I was earning a lot more money than him. He essentially gave me a budget during the week. So I was only allowed $100 to spend on um, anything that was outside the household expenses. Everything was put in a giant Excel spreadsheet. While he always said to me, like, you can always spend more than that. It's your money. Um, the reality was if I did even spend, you know, like a dollar more than that 100 there was a big emotional meltdown about why it was such a big deal and how I was letting us down. And, you know, the emotional fallout from it was so huge that, like, I ended up getting such bad anxiety about spending money that I just stopped spending money at all. I think I went, you know, close to a year without buying anything for myself outside of, you know, even lunches at work. I would buy the smaller versions of things because I was stressed. Every kind of transaction would upset him. Eventually got to the point where I had no control over my money at all. And then I started to push back um, because I found out later he was actually taking that money that um, was mine and he was going and using it for other things. So it really was a control thing where I was left with no money of my own and, you know, no kind of financial security of my own. And he was essentially taking that money and going and gambling it um, and not telling me. Um, And then, you know, when I found that out, um, it led to a big discussion about us breaking up, but it always kind of came back to you know, it was my fault that I hadn't saved properly and we were, you know, it was my fault. I couldn't manage money and, and, you know, did I know I was always terrible with money and it was just real emotional manipulation. Um, And you don't realise at the time, I think, because, you know, you think you're trying to help your partner out or, or that type of thing. But I would just say, you know, if you're ever in a situation where you don't have control over your own money for any reason, I don't care, you know, what what reason it is, then like, that's not a good situation. Yeah, that's Sarah. Isn't that just a chilling story, Annika, how pervasive that manipulation can be when money's at the core of so many of your decisions in life? Yeah, and especially that emotional idea that you just feel like you're trying to help somebody out, which I think we can all relate to. Look, financial and economic abuse is a form of domestic and family violence, and an ABS report revealed 
As many as one in 10 people have actually experienced it, and that prevalence was higher for women at 15.7% compared to men at 7.1%. Yeah, and New South Wales Uni's uh, Gendered Violence Research Network has partnered with the Commonwealth Bank. They've released a brand new report, basically looking at how financial institutions like banks um, can better support people dealing with this kind of abuse. Professor Jan Breckenridge um, is the author of this new report, Uh, Jan, thanks so much for joining us. You just heard Sarah's story. What's your reaction? Are they some of the common elements of financial abuse? Uh, Look, what Sarah was talking about, it resonates with very many um, women and some men who experience financial abuse. She was talking about control of her finance, having very little capacity to spend her own money or shared money. She talked about exploitation of the money that she earned being used for gambling and also just sabotaging her economic and financial well-being. And that's very typical with economic and financial abuse. Yeah, what really struck me about her story was that by controlling someone's finances, you control almost every aspect of their life. I think that's right. And if you have no capacity to control your own finances or you have no access to finances, it's very difficult to leave a relationship where domestic and family violence is occurring and to stay away. And If you have no capacity to seek alternative housing, if your uh, employment is jeopardised, it means that you're really stuck in a situation of coercive control and abuse. So has this become a lot more pervasive with the advent of online banking? Because you can monitor someone so much more closely if you have a shared bank account than you could say 20 years ago when everyone was using cash. Look, I think the answer is yes and no. I don't think that's an easy answer because... I do think that's true that you can monitor, but it's also true that someone can set up an account independently online much more easily. And occasionally that's been very beneficial for people affected by financial abuse. But now some of the research has been undertaken around the use of bylines where you have transactions where perpetrators actually use, they might transfer a cent to their partner or to the person that they're wanting to abuse and harass And underneath it will have something like, I'll kill you, you're dead, you're a bitch. Um, All of the things that might be said that are abusive. And if these transactions keep going, they build. And the fact that you're being contacted by the perpetrator almost continuously, I think is a really powerful form of coercive control. So Jan, your research is in partnership with ComBank. So what What are financial institutions doing in this space? Are they aware of this? And are they, I guess, because some of, as you mentioned, some of the services they offer make it possible to um, financially control people. Are they wise to that? And are they doing anything meaningful to try and address this problem? I think the banks in particular have for a very long time um, seen these type of activities, but they're not illegal. Um, A lot of financial and economic abuse is not illegal. It's not a crime. So while it might be immoral, while it might be abusive, it's very difficult for banks and other financial institutions to always know how they manage it. Mm. They're becoming increasingly aware of the potential. And certainly I know in Combank they've undertaken a number of initiatives with their specialised teams to respond. That was Professor Jan Breckenridge from the University of New South Wales. Now, as we heard there, it's not just financial decisions with romantic partners that can sour. So whether you're moving in with new housemates or starting a business with a friend or you are in a new relationship, 
it's really important to protect yourself and maintain some financial independence. Yeah, we're going to go to Natasha Jensen's for some advice. She's the founder of Women With Sense, which is an online platform to empower women with financial advice. And she can, I guess, give us some some great advice on how to deal with these problems or even stop them before they happen. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. If this kind of behavior is happening in your relationship, how do you recognize it and then try and deal with it? Yeah, it's a very tricky area to navigate for a range of reasons. But one of the things to look for, I think, that can start to give you an idea of, you know, is this healthy, what's going on? Is this crossing the line into abuse? Is to look for whether there's an inequality in the relationship. And what I mean by that is if one of you is in the relationship and is able to go and make major financial decisions without having to consult the other person. Meanwhile, the other person has to seek permission and justify you know, even the smallest of expenses. That can start to give you an idea, okay, there's an inequality here. Natasha, I've had friends that have moved in with a partner or they've gotten married and they pull all their funds. They have joint accounts for everything. And sometimes this worries me. Is it important to have access to your own money or does that work for some people? It's an interesting one because many people make the assumption that keeping assets and finances completely separate will protect you, but that's not always the case either. Um, Ultimately, if you think about it, when it comes to abuse, and that can also be emotional abuse and um, as well as financial abuse, it comes down to an element of control and coercion. So even if you have separate bank accounts, that person can still access that money and entice you to do things for them simply by controlling and manipulating you. Maintaining your own independence, I think, is important and an important stepping stone to protecting yourself, but it's not going to be the thing that will protect you um, from that happening altogether. Surely it helps, though, to a fair extent. So there's two key things. Um, One is maintaining your independence. So that means Absolutely. Having access to your own accounts, maintaining your ability to earn your own income. And this can become especially tricky if you're deciding to take a step away from work to raise kids. But even in that case, I really advocate for still doing something, freelancing or volunteering or something that keeps you um, keeping your CV current and able to step out on your own. Um, Not sharing your passwords. Again, that's the sort of thing you can have your own accounts, but if the person has the ability to actively go and access that, um, that can again start to expose you to financial abuse. So making sure that you're maintaining your independence is really important, but also transparency and staying involved in the finances. So recognizing that there's a difference between delegating and absorbing yourself. So both of you need to know where the monies are, what is going on. Both of you need to have access to the funds. If for no other reason than thinking about it, that one of you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. You know, what's going to be the implication there for the relationship? And that's what a lot of people don't recognize is how this stuff starts to evolve. Mm. It's not like being robbed at night point, you know. It, it'll start off really subtle and it might be, you know, really loving. It might be things like, you know, let, you're so busy. Let me, I'm just better with this stuff. Let me look yeah. after it. Don't, you know, don't worry about it. Or I want to make sure that I look after you so that you never have to work and you can, you know, you can just stay at home and be with the kids because that's what you love to do. What are the best things to keep in mind when you you start a relationship? And I guess that process, often a very subtle process of financial entanglement begins. 
my personal uh, belief and preference is that, first of all, we need to slow things down. So I like mm-hmm. to say no major life decisions for the first two years of the relationship. Wow. And this is because we know that when we're in love, you would have heard love is like a drug. <laughs> you know, we know that it clouds our judgment. So you wouldn't go and sign up to a mortgage when you were completely drunk, right? So why are we then going and making really major life decisions when we're in that phase of infatuation and we've got that rose-colored glasses? Because we won't want to see and we might not be able to see you know the real picture of what's going on so i think the more that we can slow that down you'll start to see whether some of these behaviors are creeping in does that person have tendencies of angry outbursts is there jealousy uh, at play all those sorts of things will start to show you okay well there may be something else there that we need to be you know, just looking after myself a little bit more because it'll start to creep in in other ways, including financially as well. Yeah, that's right. And people are always on the the lookout for, say, physical violence, but they don't necessarily understand how those behaviours might play out in financial control as well, which is what makes this area so tricky and so important to talk about. Thank you so much for joining us, Natasha. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Natasha Janssens from Women With Sense. And if that brought up any issues for you personally, you can always get help at 1-800-RESPECT. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the increasing trade tensions with China. They're our biggest trading partner. It's getting pretty, pretty concerning there. We're actually going to speak to the trade minister himself about that issue. A podcast one production.